The Adult Ballet Studio is a podcast featuring conversations with the empowering voices of the adult ballet community, a world where passion has no limits and dreams can take flight. My name's Elizabeth Blossfield, and I'm an adult ballet dancer and your host. Welcome to the studio. Happy Two Two Tuesday, everybody, and happy February. Welcome back to the Adult Ballet Studio. I'm so excited about our guest this month. We had a chance to talk about all of my favorite things, ballet, writing, books, ballet history. We touched on all of that during our interview, and I loved it so much. Joanna Marsh describes herself as a professional librarian and archivist by day and an adult ballet dancer by night. We talked about how those interests intersect, what she's learned about the history of ballet thanks to her career, and the challenges and benefits of beginning ballet as an adult. She's also an artist and an author of two books, Contique and La Folia. Her books tell the fictional story of an adult ballerina, Colette Larson, who's thrown into the world of professional ballet. I'll include a link to Joanna's website with more info on those books in the show notes for anyone who wants to check them out. We talked all about Joanna's creative process and how her playfulness and curiosity as an author translates to her ballet training. She also referenced a great writing insight that a first draft is like covering a canvas when painting. I couldn't find the exact quote that she was referencing, but I did find a great article on author Stephen Pressfield's website titled Cover the Canvas. In the article, he writes, here's my mantra for first drafts, cover the canvas. What that means is get something done from A to Z, no matter how imperfect. A first draft doesn't have to be great. It doesn't have to be pretty. It can have gaping holes. It can leave every T uncrossed and every I undotted. Momentum is everything in a first draft. Get it done. Cover the canvas. It's great advice for dancers too, whether beginner or advanced when we're in the studio. It doesn't have to be perfect or even pretty. Just get some momentum going, enjoy the process and see where it takes you. I love this advice. All right, let's get to what Joanna had to say because you won't want to miss it. I'm so sorry, by the way, if you hear some background noise during this interview. Joanna was at home with a toddler, and I'm sure parents know how fun and loud that experience can be. And I was at home with two cats who were feeling especially playful while we were talking. We've had a lot of cat parents on this podcast, so I'm sure everyone knows how that is, too. I think they just wanted to be on the podcast since they're always trying to steal the spotlight. (laughs) Well, thanks for listening anyway, and here's our conversation. I'm good. How are you? Good. Well, thanks for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. You're based in Kansas City. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And you're friends cool. with Jana Carson from Ballerinas by Night. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. She and Abby came on the podcast not too long ago. So it was great to talk to them. And I'm excited to talk to you too. And I'm I know- excited to be on here. I'm already a fan of the podcast. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. That's great. And I know I'm a big fan of your content on Instagram too. I saw that over the summer you did a summer ballet intensive for adults. Is that right? Yeah. I went to the one in Oklahoma city where Jana is. Um, but yeah, that was a really fun experience. So I've been to a few intensives. I've kind of got some, uh, I don't know, some intensive knowledge under my belt, which is (laughs) fun because we're going to do one in Kansas city, hopefully this coming summer. Oh, in a way. That's Um, awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's really exciting. I didn't actually realize there were so many ballet intensives specifically aimed at the adult ballet community until I found Ballerinas by Night, their website, where they have the list of resources. Mm -hmm. So that's really cool. And it's awesome that you've been doing some of them. Yeah, they've been popping up a lot the last few years. I know when I started there were, I think there was like one or two that I heard of and and that was about it. So every year there's more and more. We're getting there. I know we are slowly but surely. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you because I'm a writer as well. I know that you have two novels and that you're a writer and a librarian. So I'm excited to talk to you about how those skills sort of intersect with ballet. Um, For anybody who doesn't know who you are, I was wondering if you could start off just saying a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. So um, I'm Joanna Marsh, obviously. And I started dancing regularly in 2011. I was 23 at the time. So it's been a few years now. Um, I guess about 12 years. Um, prior to that, I had had a brief introduction to ballet when I was 16. Um, I went to like a once a week beginner's class with some friends, just kind of on a whim and didn't have many expectations for it, but I really fell in love with it. Um, I, I did end up like basically quitting after a year, but I was kind of moving on to other things. I went to college and everything and I didn't really know what to do with it at that point, (laughs) being 16 and most of my peers being way ahead of me. So um, I kind of moved on and then in college took a couple of dance courses and that kind of reignited my interest in ballet. And um, so I I took a dance history course in college and some other technique classes, Um, but I didn't actually get into dancing ballet regularly until I moved back home and found some open classes and haven't really looked back since. Um, And then in there, I've spent the last 10 years working in the information profession as an archivist and um, a librarian, a local history librarian. Taking a break from that, I had a baby last year. Um, So I'm home with my son right now. Yeah. So I'm not actually practicing archivist right now. Um, So yeah, that's been a big change for me. Oh, that's awesome. Well, congrats on the new baby. That's really exciting. And um, I just think it's so fascinating, your career and um, and how it sort of intersects with ballet. And I love that you sort of had this initial spark at 16 and then returned to it in your 20s. It's so cool that you were able mm-hmm. to find open classes that fostered an environment that kept you going. And I wanted to, real quick, before we get back into your ballet journey, I just wanted to talk about your career as a librarian and archivist, because I know you, um, you say on your website that you're a professional librarian and archivist by day and sort of a ballerina by night. So how did you find yourself in that career and what sort of led you um, on that path? Um, so it's kind of a roundabout way. I, so I studied humanities in college and minored in art. And I thought maybe I'd go more of the art route. I looked at different grad school programs and art history. Um, but I, in the meantime, had to make some money. <laughs> right. Um, so my, my friend was working um, actually at a recruiting company. It was like a temp agency. And she had this position at a pharmaceutical company she needed to fill. Um, and I, I did that for her kind of as a favor. Um, but Long story short, I ended up working there for over three years because they transferred me to the medical library. Um, So I worked in what was called the knowledge management, knowledge management department. And um, basically, I worked right next to the librarian and was helping um, send these neuroscientists journal articles. So I was acting as a digital librarian and 
I was just really fascinated by the fact that there was a corporate librarian. I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> so I started looking into library programs and ended up doing um, a Master of Library Science with an archives concentration since I had the humanities background. Uh, going, you know, focusing more on history made more sense to me, and I've always been interested in history. Um, so I did that program, and I ended up uh, working at the National Archives. There's a regional branch here in Kansas City. Um, so I did that for a year, and then I moved to a public library and a special collections department. And so that's where I was for the last seven-ish years. Um, working in special collections, which was the local history department. Um, and I was an archivist. Um, my title was special collections librarian. So I just did a lot of processing archival collections. And um, it was kind of a hybrid between a librarian and an archivist, um, but mostly an archivist. That's awesome. That's such a fascinating career path. And I had no idea that pharmacies had knowledge management departments. So that's new information to me. Yeah. So. <laughs> So when did your love of books and your love of ballet sort of start to intersect or did one influence the other in any way? Um, well, I found that I was always like pulling my interest in dance into my job. <laughs> yeah. kind of like finding ways to incorporate it. Um, and, and that actually happened a lot. So just a couple of examples. The last collection I processed before I left last year was actually a collection of Ballet Russe programs that I had just I found on the shelf one day. Oh, um, they had been, they were like mid-century ballet russe programs that had been bound together in this volume and it had a call number on it, but it wasn't in the catalog. So there was no electronic record for it. So it was, as far as the public was concerned, it didn't exist. Um, so for some reason, it was just on the shelf uncatalogued. And as an archivist, you know, I was frustrated that someone had bound these programs together in no particular order. <laughs> there's, there's like a National Ballet of Canada program stuck in the middle somewhere too. <laughs> um, so my, my colleague actually took them out of the binding and then I um, converted it into a special collection. So I like went through all the programs and indexed them, um, kind of pulling names of dancers and choreographers out and, and recording that so that a researcher could search for those terms. Um, and doing some like basic preservation work. Um, so that was really fun just to kind of use my interests and, and personal investment in dance to get that collection out to the public. Um, and also process a really, I spent several years processing a really big collection from a local theater that had lots of dance companies come through. So there are um, programs and, and, various materials from things like Martha Graham Dance Company and Alvin Ailey. Um, there's a lot during the 80s, uh, yeah. things like Paul Taylor. And there's a lot of um, like mid-century burlesque dancer photographs, which are kind of fun to go through. Um, so yeah, things like that. I, I also illustrated and wrote a coloring book featuring Kansas City women. My favorite of whom was Tatiana Dogodovska, who founded Kansas City Ballet. Um, so just kind of fun little projects here and there that I was always um, trying to bring my, my own interest in there. As far as like books go, I uh, obviously ended up writing a couple novels about ballet and it wasn't really on my radar. It kind of like happened. <laughs> Uh, not on accident, but um, 
it was a, a strange process where I never like set out to become an author per se. I've always liked writing and had to write a lot of articles for work. Um, so it's mostly like in the historical articles, like realm of nonfiction. So writing a fiction book kind of came out of left field for me. Oh, that's awesome. Um, well, that's how all the best projects start, right? <laughs> Happy accident. Yeah, I guess so. I, I basically had a scene from Conti come to me in a flash one day. It was very strange, kind of like um, I just had this vision of these two dancers at the bar during Ron Dijam and um, one of them hears this beautiful music she's never heard before and she closes her eyes because she's like so overcome by its beauty. And her friend who's watching her through the mirror, which is a very ballet class thing to do, <laughs> just kind of sees her and, and laughs a little bit for um, her being overly romantic in that moment. So I have no idea where that came from. It was like this little snippet of a scene. And I knew immediately who these two characters were, kind of what kind of woman they would be. And that there's something about that music she hears that's really special. And I was like intrigued by it. Um, so I wrote that down. That was probably like 2013, I think. Um, and gradually had more scenes kind of come to me. And eventually I had enough material that I realized like I could actually write a novel from the story that's emerging. And I just kind of had to shuffle everything around and put it in order. And then I decided to write a plot outline and um, kind of fill in the gaps for all, between all the scenes I already had. Um, so eventually it became a book, <laughs> um, getting, deciding to publish it was like a whole nother story. I love this. And there's such good novels, Contique and La Folia, and we'll talk about them in just a second. But I love that that idea was born out of just a ballet bar. You know, you were in class and mm -hmm. the idea just came to you. Um, I think that's so cool. And I just, before we dig into the books that you've written, I just wanted to ask you, because I know you have all these passions and these interests, you know, with uh, history and writing and, you know, books and ballet, and you found a way to make them all intersect, which is so cool. Um, you wrote a blog on your website, Joanna Marsh Books, um, a while back that talked about how you always sort of felt like the odd person out in your family um those full of athletes but with ballet you mm -hmm. discovered that you are an athlete and you know I love that because ballet is a sport but it's not one that we normally think of because everyone thinks of it as so soft and graceful but it's incredibly difficult and requires so much you know strength and discipline just like any sport so I'm curious how ballet helped you discover that new side of yourself yeah uh, that's such a good question I um I always liked exercising and like doing like yoga and Pilates, but I was not into sports, which is very much my family's thing. It's like team sports. Um, and yeah, I always felt a little bit like left out or just different. And then when I started ballet, it was so physically challenging. It was harder than anything I had tried before. And I realized like I actually had some natural ability. Um, Granted, a lot of the people in my class were like very little girls, so <laughs> I had an advantage over them <laughs> for sure. Um, but you know, I, I just kind of took to it right away, and I understood like the aesthetics, even if I couldn't quite achieve them yet. You know, um, I just kind of it kind of clicked, and physically, it wasn't hard for me to like pick up on combinations, and um, I enjoyed like trying to jump as high as I could. You know. Um, things like that. So I just kind of, I realized, I think the more you're in ballet, the more you realize how difficult it is and how 
amazing professional dancers are. Yeah. (laughs) The things that they're able to do are just incredible. And you don't quite get that unless you're in the studio trying to do it. I, I felt like I had found something physical I could do that I loved enough to stick with for a long time. I mean, the rest of my life, hopefully. Um, and I haven't felt that with anything else. You know, I kind of um, dabbled here and there with like trying to get into sports when I was really little. And I just didn't care so much. And ballet was that one thing where it was like a marriage of art and athleticism that really spoke to me because uh, art always felt way more important to me than sports did. And so this was like this perfect union of the two that felt kind of unique to who I was as a person. Um, So I kind of experienced that as a teenager, even if I couldn't articulate it yet. And then as an adult, it just, you know, the physical part, like it it keeps me healthy and, you know, it and mentally keeps me healthy. And then there's this great outlet of expression that comes along with it, too. You know, I love hearing these stories of when the bug sort of bit people to get into ballet because, um, you know, it is it's such a beautiful art form and it really does combine, you know, that athleticism um, with art and creativity. And I know. So then it opened up this, you know, sort of other side of you as well, this passion for fiction writing. You have these two books, Contique and La Folia. And I know that you wrote these books for the adult ballet community specifically. So I was curious why that community was important to you or why you decided to focus on it as an audience for your writing. I think it it was partly because there wasn't anything (laughs) (laughs) like that yet. And and I, um, dancing as an adult is such a specific experience. Like, it is so, it's such a niche thing to begin with. Um, and, like, writing is kind of how I've always processed the world anyway. So it's kind of natural that as I was going through this process, I would kind of get some of that out by writing it down. Um, I just didn't realize it would be in the form of fiction. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, it's kind of like, you know, you create the thing that's not out there yet and like I wanted to read about someone else having this experience um and and what got me to publish it ultimately was realizing like this could help someone else feel understood um because I felt very misunderstood like it's it's really hard for anyone who hasn't experienced what it's like to be in a ballet studio to, to understand the appeal and and honestly like kind of the obsession that happens (laughs) with it um and so I think it was natural for me to kind of work that out through writing and it ended up being in this story um which you know the character the main character has some similarities to me but she's she's a fictional character she's a different person and I I thought maybe you know that that medium was a little more um universally relatable to people when you have a fictional character uh, rather than just like reading my own you know diary about <laughs> dancing ballet, right. um, yeah so like I said it's just such a it's such a specific experience that uh, you know I felt that telling this story would help other adults you know, feel more like validated and hopefully inspired too. 
that like it's okay to have this passion you can still do a lot with it it's meaningful you know it can take you places you don't have to feel like silly or embarrassed about the fact that you want to dance ballet as an adult um and you know when i started writing that like i said i think it was 2013 when i wrote that scene down and there was hardly any content out there i think i can't remember when ballerinas by night started but i there was barely anything. And I remember like scouring the internet to be like, are there other people like me? <laughs> you know, I, I want to know what other people are experiencing. Um, and so like, I, I didn't publish until 2017. And by then there was a lot more out there. And I kind of felt a sense of urgency. Like I got to get this out be- before someone else does, before <laughs> someone else writes the story, you know, right. <laughs> I sat on it for a while just cause I was, terrified of publishing um, that's a whole nother thing but i eventually did um, so yeah that's a long answer to your question no i love that answer you mentioned so many things that you know i want to talk about first of all i love that you know part of being an artist is just you know surprising your audience and surprising yourself continuously and i love that you surprised yourself by writing fiction it's something you never thought a path that you never thought of venturing down and and then it turned into a really successful career as a novelist. Um, and I also love that you're using these characters to sort of speak to the adult ballet community, you know, people who feel maybe misunderstood the way that you did when you first started ballet, because I did an interview for this podcast uh, a few months ago where we were talking about the importance of just in, you know, the fictional characters that you love, whether it's in a book or a play or even, you know, a ballet, just finding something that you can relate to or something that makes you feel seen or maybe even helps you understand experiences that are unlike your own. So I think, you know, your work creating these characters in Cantique and in La Folia is so important because it can help people, um, you know, they fall in love with a character and then they realize that they're not so alone in their own experiences with ballet. So I think that's great. And um and I know you mentioned the the plot of the ballet in Cantique came from Song of Solomon and its various interpretations. You've mentioned that in previous interviews, um, that you read the book and tried to sort of imagine how your main character, Colette, might structure a ballet from it. So what drew you to that book in particular and how did you imagine it as a ballet? Yeah, I'm having to think way back. <laughs> um, the throwback. You know, <laughs> funnily enough, when I my early drafts, it was actually Paradise Lost that she was basing it off of. Okay. And I, at that point, I was actually um, realizing, like, oh, this is a love story. And so, like, originally it was more of a, just, like, kind of a coming-of-age story-ish, kind of like a quarter-life crisis coming-of-age. And then it eventually uh, evolved into also a love story. Um, and so I think I decided Song of Solomon would be a better parallel <laughs> for that than Paradise Lost, <laughs> something like that. It's been, you know, 10 years since I was thinking okay. through all this. Um, yeah, I think I wanted, I liked the idea of like a, a very old biblical ballet, just because it's a little different. And Song of Solomon has so much imagery in it. Uh, that I thought that would be interesting, like an interesting challenge. And also there was this whole other aspect of, I was trying to find something that I couldn't find a record of like having been done before. So that weeded out a lot of stories. Um, And so I did some research at the time. I consulted some 
like obscure dance encyclopedias to find like an older ballet based off Song of Solomon and I couldn't find anything. So that was another deciding factor. It was like, okay, this one, there's at least not like a, a really obvious record of, of a production of this. So that would be a good one to put in the book. Cause I didn't want to do something that, you know, has obviously been done. Um, which funny since then there has been a production of Song of Solomon. Um, oh, no way. Songs. Yeah, I think it was like San Diego Ballet or something. It was just within the last few years. And there's also a Westmoreland Ballet that <laughs> sprung up, which is the name of the company in the novel. Um, right, so it's I like, <laughs> I find so often that like life imitates art. It's not the other way around. There are so many things that have happened since I've written these books that have happened in real life after the fact. Uh, that it's it's really crazy. <laughs> Another talent that you were able to predict the future. So. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. I'm a prophet, I guess. <laughs> no, that's great. And then I know your other book, La Folia, focuses on performing as an adult. And, um, you know, you mentioned that when you were, you know, first writing um, Cantique, you know, way back in, in 20, I think you mentioned 2013 is when you first came up with the idea for it, there weren't, you know, as many resources for the adult ballet community as there are now. And even still now, you know, um, we talked at the beginning about how things are changing slowly, but surely, but, you know, it's still difficult to find resources for adults. And I know that performance opportunities are one of those things that are sort of few and far between. So um, wh what would you like to see change in ballet about performance opportunities and access to that for adult dancers? And, or what have you observed that is changing that you're excited about with ballet? Yeah, I think there have been a lot of changes just within the last few years. Um, as far as like more opportunities being available for adults, I've seen like little, um, little adult companies spring up and uh, like performance groups and people starting their own groups, which is great. Um, it's like, ideally, I would like larger dance organizations to give adults more opportunities but you know we kind of have to like wait for them to catch up <laughs> sometimes so I found that like creating your own is the way to go which I think is how all these other things have started I think people have taken notice of that and realized like they're okay there's a good market here like maybe we should offer things like summer intensive or you know workshops or things like that um so i have seen a, a lot of growth in the last 10 years for sure um and i think like moving forward yes i would like more opportunities for adults whether that's like anything beyond technique class you know like point class variations um summer intensives you know opportunities to do like a showcase performance at the end of the year things like that would be great but like even more than that i would like us to just be taken seriously <laughs> I feel like there's still not everywhere but I think in a lot of places there's still this wide gulf between like professional realm and you know adults dancing recreationally um I would like there to be like more of a spectrum there um just because like with everything else there's more of a spectrum from like beginner to professional and with ballet, it's more like beginner, <laughs> professional. There's not a whole lot in between. And I, I think that is changing. Um, but it would be nice to have more like 
companies that aren't necessarily professional, you know, um, just like, you know, I'm, I'm also like in the art world and I'm not like super professional artists, but there's still a lot of opportunities to show your work in a lot of places, even in kind of like that amateur level. And I, I kind of, I hope that for ballet that we just kind of get more, um, more opportunities and more people appreciating what we do. Um, cause not a whole lot of people go to see dance performances that aren't, you know, the Nutcracker or, you know, some huge professional production. Um, it would just be nice to have more little performances. Um, my husband's in a, an ensemble, he plays the trumpet and he plays in little shows all over the city, you know, throughout the year. So that's kind of like what I would like to see. Um, I've had more opportunities than a lot of adult recreational dancers. Um, but there's still like, you know, it's not like consistent. It's every couple of years I might get something. Um, so it'd be nice to have something more regular for sure. Yeah, I agree with you. I hope that for ballet too. I hope for those changes. And um, I think that sort of contributes to, you know, maybe some adults having some fear or anxiety about stepping into a studio for the first time if they're a beginner or even, you know, performing for the first time if they get the opportunity to do that. And I was wondering, you know, for adults who want to perform and never have before, or maybe even are just adult beginners, you know, or returning to ballet and are scared to take that first step to go to a class, um, you know, what would you say to them? Or do you have any advice for kind of getting started? Yeah, as far as like getting started from square one, like you're going to walk into your first class, like I say, just do it and own it. I mean, if you want to dance, you absolutely belong there. I I've struggled so for so long feeling like I, I still didn't quite belong or I didn't deserve to be in the studio, um, which is silly. Like if you have that drive and you want to dance, you absolutely do belong there. Um, and so, like, don't feel, don't feel bad about <laughs> having that desire and know that you do deserve a place in the studio. Um, as far as, like, going to your first class, I always tell people I would look online ahead of time to get kind of the basic terminology. Um, especially if you're not familiar with French, like, it's probably going to throw you for a loop. <laughs> so I always say, like, do some studying ahead of time so that you've got that, that base knowledge down because most classes that are labeled beginner ballet aren't really beginner ballet. Um, in my experience, most of them aren't going to start, you know, with all, with the five positions and, and, you know, really break down everything for you. Um, there's a lot of information coming at you. So it's like the more you can kind of prepare yourself ahead of time, the better, just so you can focus more while you're in the studio, it'll be a little less overwhelming to at least know what, you know, plie and tendu and, and all those things are, have sort of a framework for that. As far as like performing, in my experience, like you kind of have to put yourself out there and, and um, like create your own, <laughs> your own path. <laughs> that sounds silly, but, you know, I have had to like go to other small studios to get point training and performance opportunities like if you're um training at a larger studio affiliated with a professional company sometimes it's it's more likely you'll be able to perform if you go to a smaller studio where they have like a recital at the end of the year that you could be in um 
So I'm not saying like totally switch studios, but you might have to like go to a few um, to find some place where they're willing to do that. And so, you know, you kind of have to like think outside the box and put yourself in places where you might get something else and also talk to people about it. That's another thing is like teachers, they usually want to help you out with stuff like this, but they have to know that you're interested first. So like asking like, Hey, could we start a point class or like a pre-point class sometimes, you know, is there some place where I could get performance experience? Like you have to kind of put that out there and start talking to people so that down the road when there is an opportunity, you know, they'll remember you. And, um, you know, it's kind of a long game in, in that, that sense. But I found that you really do have to take control over your dance life and um, advocate for yourself a little bit. And I'm not saying like be pushy about it, but you know, just over, over time when you're like dedicated to a studio and you talk to people like you do forge relationships that will lead to other opportunities. So true. And that's such important advice advocating for yourself. You know, if you want something, there's no harm in asking for it. And again, you, like right. you said, you don't have to be pushy, but it's important to vocalize the things that you actually yeah. want out of your ballet training. So I think that's great advice. And I think it's also, you know, what you said at the beginning, it's so much mind over matter, just, you know, kind of getting yourself in a mental place where you realize I do belong here and um, kind of getting past some of those insecurities and fears that hold you back sometimes. And I think that kind of leads into my next question, because I wanted to get back to something you said a little bit earlier. I know that you mentioned one of your biggest challenges with writing these novels was just releasing them to the public because you've spoken before about how you're a perfectionist and, you know, wanted them to be completely polished and perfect before people saw them. And I think that really aligns with the mentality in ballet. You know, so many ballet dancers are afraid to make mistakes or, you know, maybe look silly in class or, um, you know, they don't want to dance unless their dancing feels really polished, you know, like the professionals that they see on stage or on Instagram. So I was curious how you worked through that fear with publishing these books and how that sort of translates to conquering fear, any fears that you have in the ballet studio. Yeah, that's a good one. (laughs) Um, yeah, so I, I had a full draft for Contique, I, I feel like maybe for two two years. Um, and I had like, you know, a pretty fancy New York editor go over it with me. And I just kind of felt like it would never be done. It wouldn't be good enough. I would have things in there that I'd regret later, all of these things. Um, but I went to a workshop in New York that was put on by um, Sean Coyne, who wrote the story grid, which is kind of like a an editing structure for fiction and um in in that workshop so i'm gonna drop some names sean coin tim grawl stephen pressfield and seth godin were there oh, on wow. a panel and i <laughs> it was like a q a time and i was just like i don't know what to do with this it's like i don't know whether to try to find an agent seems like nobody's going to want to publish this book just because it's such a specific subject, you know, like, I feel like I have to publish it independently, but like, how am I ever going to feel, you know, like that it's, it's ready when I don't have that like outsider validation telling me it's ready. Um, So anyway, during this Q and a, I finally plucked up the courage to ask, I was like, Hey, Seth Godin, (laughs) what if you have this book? that like people have read and they've given you feedback and you're sitting on it and you don't know 
that it's ever going to be good enough. And he asked me a series of questions about it. And at the end of that, he was like, publish it by Friday. You need to, to publish it by Friday. And I was like, whoa, 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 I can't do Friday. He was like, okay, well, as soon as you can, get it out there. Stop thinking about it. It was kind of like the push that I needed. Um, and he also you know, gave me this analogy about jazz and, and, you know, kind of the part of improv where like there might be some mistakes in there, but you can't recreate it. Like you have to, you have to kind of embrace those mistakes to get the full piece. Um, and so I finally was like, you know what? I think that was the outsider validation I needed to just get it out there. From Seth Godin, um, which doesn't hurt. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, okay, okay, I guess so. I'm not going to make it by Friday, but maybe in a couple months. Um, that's what got it out there. And also, like I said, just realizing, like, if this helps one woman or one person feel more understood, then, like, I've done my job. Like, you have to kind of leave everything else. Like, obviously, there's mistakes in there. There are things I would do differently now, but, like, I can't dwell on it. And it is really hard not to um but yeah I have to like think about the people who've read it who've given me good feedback who you know it's it's been beneficial for them and and move on to the next project um so and when I did the sequel I wanted to do a performance story because structurally like if we're talking content genre Cantique uh, was a love story coming of age uh, it's about ballet but it's not a performance story like there's not the main character doesn't perform at the end um so I wanted to do that more like traditional performance story for the second one as just kind of a a good challenge for myself and I felt like I owed that character a performance experience um so that was a, a different process for sure it um was easier in some ways harder in others but I didn't have quite as much baggage this time about it being perfect it's kind of like well I know it's not gonna be <laughs> I'm gonna do do the best I can at this moment and you know my my test for myself was like was I true to myself at the time that I wrote this then I can't ask for anything else because you know we're all changing and growing and evolving and my work today would look different but was I true to myself at the time yes I was like that's that's all I can all I can hope for. So yeah, exactly. That's so important. Staying true to yourself and true to your motivation for writing it. And I just love that advice. I think it's so true of so many things. Just, you know, don't look down, just jump and just do it. Um, you know, so many times we get held back by our fear. I'm part of a, a writing workshop group um, in my community. And one of the things we always say is you can't edit a blank page. So just get started, you know, and it, it's so yeah. true. Like you can't, you're not going to reap any of the benefits of these projects if they're just sitting in a drawer. So <laughs> I think sure. it's great that you took that leap. And I love that you mentioned the writing process being like jazz. I know that you've, you've spoken before about how it's kind of like improv. I think that's an interesting analogy because um, writing does feel like you're sort of discovering something or, you know, uncovering something. Um, and you've mentioned that you try to approach it with, you know, playfulness and curiosity and, and also a lot of patience. Um, so mm -hmm. when when you find yourself getting sort of bogged down with some of those challenges of writing, whether it's, you know, perfectionism or just fear of getting started or whatever it is, how do you continue to introduce that playfulness and curiosity to keep going? Another good question. <laughs> These are really making me think. Okay. Um, 
Yeah. How do I do it? Well, <laughs> this isn't going to be very helpful. Um, but <laughs> since I do have a lot of different creative outlets, sometimes I have to switch, switch to another one for a while. Like if I'm really stuck, um, which I did get stuck with Lafolia for a while, um, I had to just stop and I like painted a mural. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> painted a mural in my second bedroom. And then like by the time that was done and I worked some other things out, I was like ready to go again. So like taking a break and maybe trying something different sometimes is good. Other times, you know, if you have a deadline and you have to push through it, that's a little different. Um, which, yeah, I don't know how like in the moment I implement that. Other than just trying to tell myself, kind of tricking yourself into saying, like, this is not the final draft. No one's going to read this. This is just, like, let's see where this goes. Giving yourself permission to trash it sometimes kind of unlocks something in your brain. Saying, like, you know, this is an exercise. Like, this isn't the actual chapter that's going in the book. I think sometimes that helps. Um, just kind of take the pressure off. And I don't know, a lot of times if I, if I tell myself like, you know, this is not the final one, just give it a shot. We'll go over it later. You know, right. yeah, getting <laughs> that, helps me, that helps me get going. Just knowing like, this isn't, no one has to read this. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think that's important advice to sort of get out of that mentality of this has to be perfect to the first draft. And I do have to ask you, though, how does it feel being so talented? I feel like uh, <laughs> most people are like, oh, I needed to take a break and go take a walk. And you're like, I painted a mural in my bedroom. Yeah. Taking a walk is also really good advice. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Yeah, that's all great advice. Um, I used to like record, I would read chapters from Kantik and record them and I would go on a walk and listen to them. And like, I would have all sorts of edits by the time I got home. So that's actually really good advice. Um, but yeah, I'm not that talented. I just have a lot of interests. Oh, stop. <laughs> I'm just like kind of good at a few things. <laughs> You're um, good at a lot of things. But yeah, it's nice to be able to toggle back and forth and also yeah. see the, the parallels between creativity and all these different mediums is endlessly fascinating to me. Like another thing that helps me with a rough draft I can't remember who said this. Some famous person said that it, a rough draft is like covering your canvas when you're painting. Mm -hmm. And as a painter, I instantly knew what that meant because you're, you're blocking in all the, all the colors. You're like getting the basic composition. And as you paint, you're like slowly, everything's coming more into focus and you're working on the whole thing at once. And like that first initial covering your canvas, like it should be free and like, you know, it's not a big deal. You just get it covered. And that's what a rough draft is um, with writing. It's like, you're just trying to get the big picture and it can be sloppy. You're going to go over it a million times. Like you're, you're getting the basic composition down. And it's kind of the same with learning choreography too. Like you get yeah. like that basic structure of like where you are on the stage and, um, and, and then you, like start sharpening all of the details as you go along but you can't like do all that detail work right away because you're probably gonna have to restructure something and then right. that work is wasted so like thinking of those parallels between things helps me a lot too I do remember telling myself when writing like you're just covering your canvas that's fine like, that's all yeah that's all this is just 
blocking everything in. It's going to be fine. <laughs> yeah, I love that. That's a great visual for really anything, like you said, whether it's choreography or writing or some other art form. And it is really cool to learn about all the intersections of these different, you know, art forms and skills. And even with your work as an archivist, you know, um, studying history, I know that ballet has a long, you know, fascinating history as well. So is that one of the things that drew you to it maybe even subconsciously or you know what intrigues you intrigues you the most about ballet's history is there something that you find particularly fascinating about it yeah it it is really fascinating and that I think that probably is part of the draw like you said maybe unconsciously um I, <laughs> I since I was little I've been interested in 18th century France I, my mom let me watch a movie when I was too young I don't know <laughs> Um, so like the fact that, you know, there's the whole Louis the 14th, um, being a huge part of its origin has been fascinating to me. And I, uh, I mentioned taking a dance history course, which was really helpful to me just to kind of get a basic picture of where dance has been, like before I started actually taking part in that history. Um, and I, you know, the, the structure of class and kind of the etiquette there's something so like old school about it you know that's just appealing to me I think it's it's really refreshing in a way um and the way that dance is recorded in history is really fascinating to me because you know I've been used to relying on the written word so much using manuscript material um to kind of glean history out of and with dance like even though we have recording and dance notation has been around for centuries, it's still like so much of dance knowledge is stored in dancers' bodies. Like people still memorize entire ballets and that's how <laughs> that history is recorded. Like no matter how much video we have, there's still so much that's like only known in, in the body, which is so interesting to me. Um, just like things being passed down from teacher to student that can't really be articulated by watching a video or like reading a, a dance that's been notated, you know, um, there's something so different about like, just for example, learning a variation from a video where you have to like mirror it and try to figure out the steps yourself is so different <laughs> from learning it from a teacher who has decades of experience, who like learned it from this famous person who learned it from another famous dancer. And like, you know, that teacher can tell you, this is the version we did, but it was changed because this particular dancer couldn't do that step. So we've replaced it with this step. You know, it's, there's so much history that's just within dancers themselves. And I find that really, really interesting. And like, like I said, just refreshing to be a part of that because we're so reliant on like recorded information and not using our memories um, that I think it's it's really fun to be a part of something that's kind of like countercultural in that way. Like I see, even though ballet is so traditional, I see it as countercultural today just because, it, you know, we're not used to having to like memorize things so quickly, like memorizing combinations and having this knowledge base like stored in our bodies. Uh, that's me. I could talk about that for a long time. 
it's a tangent, I know. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's something I've never thought about before, really, just sort of the history of ballet being recorded within dancers' bodies. And I think it contributes to sort of the ephemeral nature of ballet, too, like this idea that you're creating right. a piece of art for a moment and it's sort of living and breathing and changes, you know, as as the dancer changes or as um, the moment in time shifts. So mm -hmm. I just think um, with, with any kind of art that's presented live like that, whether it's, you know, theater or dance, I just think that's one of the most exciting things about it is that you're kind of there witnessing something happen in one moment that will never happen exactly the same again um yeah. so yeah I could talk about this for another hour or two I think it's so mm -hmm. fascinating <laughs> um I know that we're getting close to the end but um I do have to ask you I'm sure you get this question all the time but are you working on any new writing projects or is there more to Colette's story that we'll get to see in the future um so I'm not currently working on anything actively I have a toddler right now so he's keeping yes. me very busy um, I've kind of dabbled with things here and there, but you know, I think there's potential for a third installment, but I'm not like making any promises. Um, I, I'm not sure where I'm going to go with it. I would like to write another book someday. Um, but right now I've, I've mostly been focusing on dancing. I had to take a pretty big break after, um, having my son. And then I was diagnosed with Graves disease, which is an autoimmune hyperthyroid disease. And so I had to take a really long break from dancing. So right now I'm just enjoying getting back into it. That's kind of my main creative focus. Um, and then I have an art show coming up in February. So writing has kind of taken a backseat to those things. Um, but I, I think that it's something I'll do for the rest of my life. It'll just be, you know, in phases. Yeah, exactly. It's a part of you now. I love that you're, you know, back in the studio, back to ballet. And you mentioned your art show. Are, are you okay saying where it is if any listeners want yeah, to? Yeah, for sure. It's in Jacksonville, Illinois at the David Strawn Gallery. Um, my work will be up for the month of February. So if anyone is in the Illinois area, <laughs> oh, um, you know, I'm traveling there from Kansas City, so I don't know a whole lot about the area. But uh, yeah, I'm going to have a little reception there. February 3rd and then my work will be up for the month oh that's awesome well congrats on that show that's exciting and yeah any Thank listeners you. in the Illinois area who are willing to travel definitely go check it out that sounds awesome and I know we're toward the end of our time but we have a petite allegro section on the podcast where we just ask a bunch of like fun quick questions about ballet yeah a writer and a librarian I feel like it only makes sense to start off sort of asking what's your favorite book whether it's ballet related or otherwise mm. <laughs> it's hard to so choose hard. <laughs> I know I need to like pick a genre and then tell you um I don't I'm gonna go really cliche and say Pride and Prejudice is probably my favorite book a class. Uh, ballet, ballet book is Apollo's Angels the the history of ballet. Oh, that's a good one too. Yeah, those are both great books. And do you have a favorite place to write or, um, you know, where you do your best writing or does it change? Um, it changes for luckily, I did most of it on the treadmill. <laughs> on the treadmill. Wow. <laughs> that was new. <laughs> that's awesome. It is sometimes good to unlock ideas when you're in motion. So that makes sense to me. Yeah. Like I said, I was kind of stuck on that book and 
actually just like walking really slowly on the treadmill worked really well for me. So, and then as far as ballet goes, what's the go-to item in your dance bag that you have to have at every class or every rehearsal? Mm, I think right now it's my sauna pants from Bodil. I've worn them like almost every class since I've got them. And it's so hard for me to take them off now. Like <laughs> they're so comfortable. <laughs> I need to like force myself to put a skirt on for center or something. Right. That's my new goal. But yeah. <laughs> those are my favorite right now. That's great. And then for Contique, we talked about how you imagined Song of Solomon as a ballet. Is there another book that you would love to see um, brought to life in ballet form? Um, so I actually should ask you about this. I've always wanted to see Lord of the Rings, the ballet, and I saw Lee Pertle was doing something to having to do with that. Yeah. I saw some like Hobbit video or something. <laughs> yes. I'm so happy you brought that up. She'll be really excited to hear that you're interested in that because we did at our, um, I'm for anybody listening who doesn't know, I'm a company dancer with Lee Pertle Ballet Company. We're a non-professional adult ballet company. Um, and last year we had our gala and we previewed just a little snippet of a forthcoming ballet that's based on Lord of the Rings. So I know that that's in the right. works. I'm not sure the exact timeline, but I'm excited about that too. So that makes me yeah. happy. <laughs> You've made my dreams come true. <laughs> oh, I was so glad that we could do that. <laughs> I was like, somebody's doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Yeah, it's awesome. Lee um, never ceases to amaze me. Her genius brain comes up with all these fascinating ideas. Um, and then um, is there a particular ballet um, or a ballet dancer that has inspired you in your career, um, whether it's as a dancer or a writer? Well, I should mention, so uh, when I took that class at 16, I've kind of pieced this together in retrospect. I think I was like primed to accept that invitation because I had seen the movie The Company just like a Robert Altman movie. It's the one with Nev Campbell. It's about the Joffrey Ballet of Chicago. And that was kind of my first like um, experience with some contemporary ballet. I think I had only seen the Nutcracker prior to that. Uh, so seeing that movie, which had ballets like Light Rain in it, um, you know, there's, there's a few others I can't think of the titles uh, at the moment, but the pieces in that movie really, really impact me. I was like, wow, this is awesome. <laughs> like, I want to do that, that kind of feeling. Um, so I think that's why as a teenager, I was like, sure, I'll get ballet a try. Cause I had seen that movie and um, those pieces. I, I just thought were like the coolest thing I had seen at that point. Yeah. Um, so that was a big inspiration as far as like ballets now. Um, I really liked Michael Pink's Dracula and Adam Hoagland's Rite of Spring, kind of those darker, gritty ballets. Um, yeah, those have really stuck with me. And I, I was a super in a couple of productions. And Giselle, I think, Act Two is always going to be really uh, fascinating for me. Just kind of the creepy ghost story ballet. Yes. <laughs> I, uh, like, specific dancers, there's no one that's... I've really... Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I'm inspired by a lot of people. There's not like one person that I'm like, oh, I wish I could dance like them. Um, yeah, they're they're all amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Every professional dancer, I'm just like, how how can you do this? <laughs> I know. I'm the same way. Anyone who does ballet is just it takes so much strength and so much perseverance. I'm I'm so inspired by them. 
Um, and then my last question, I always ask everyone who comes on the podcast, in a perfect world, what would you want ballet to look like or what would you want it to be? Uh, I just want more more of it. Like I want more people to appreciate it and and go to see shows. And, and like I said, just there being more of a spectrum of different types of performances. Um, I think so many people think of like recitals for little kids or big professional productions. And I would like there to just be all sorts in between um, that more people are exposed to and can appreciate. Yeah, I agree. More ballet is never a bad thing. So that's a great answer. And I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's combined so many of my favorite things, you know, writing, history, ballet, books. Um, So where can people find you on, you know, social media or your website if they want to connect with you? Um, So I'm on Instagram at Ballet Librarian. And if you're interested in my artwork, I have an account called Gem Visual Art. It's J-E-M. And joannamarshbooks.com is where you can find my books. And yeah, I'm usually usually posting on Instagram. I haven't been like super great about updating it. But um, if anyone wants to send me a message on there, I try to get back to all of them. Yeah, that's great. And we'll include links to all of those in the show notes as well if anyone wants to connect. But Joanna, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. It's been so great to learn from you. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Wasn't Joanna so much fun? I learned so much talking to her. I love how multi-talented she is, whether she's dancing, writing, painting, being a mom, a librarian, an archivist. She does so much. She mentioned at the end of our interview that she has an art show coming up at the David Strawn Gallery in Jacksonville, Illinois. Her work will be up for the whole month of February, so if any listeners are in the area, be sure to stop by. I'll include a link with the details in the show notes. And that's it. That's our February episode. Before I go, I put a poll up on my Instagram last week asking whether you wanted these episodes monthly or more frequently, and so many of you voted that you want more of the Adult Ballet Studio. Thank you all so much for giving me your feedback. I want to be bringing you content that you love, so I'm going to do some extra mid-month episodes as often as I can. That way you don't have to wait an entire month for a new interview. So look out for February's mid-month episode on Tuesday, February 20th. 20th. We have a great guest and I can't wait for you to hear what they had to say. Thanks for tuning in everybody. And I know you hear me say this every time and I'm sorry to be repetitive, but if you like what you're hearing, please consider giving us a review and a rating on the platform of your choice. It helps this podcast grow. There's also a question box below each episode on Spotify that asks who should join the studio next. Let me know who you want to hear from, or you can always send me an email at theadultballetstudio at gmail.com or connect with me on Instagram at eblossfield. In the meantime, happy dancing and see you at the bar.